You ever been to Venice, Sat? No. You want to tell me about Venice? Do you know what's in the canals of Venice? You can tell me. How about you enlighten us? My on understanding that? is that the canals of Venice, Italy, are essentially their sewers. I kind of figured. So, I just got back from Italy. Uh, was there for just over a week. Spent about five, five, four or five nights in Venice. And one night we're walking around. And anyone that's been there, I think, can picture this. Dark, small, cobblestone streets. We're walking along and there's these this couple with suitcases. And they're, it looks like they're lost. And then all of a sudden, the guy falls in the canal. Ooh. So we're about to go up a bridge. And then there's sort of like a staircase down to the left, down to the canal. And we're going up a bridge to the right. And so... I'm kind of off to the side. My wife's beside me. And then on the other side of us, closest to this couple, is uh, uh, an employee of ours, Annabelle. And she hears the splash and runs down to the canal. And the guy is gasping for air. Oh, no. So then I come around and I like, she's like down on the bottom step, grabbing him, holding on to sort of a metal, I don't know, like a, a little piece of a broken railing or something. The bottom steps are super slippery. And I'm there, so I kind of grab her shoulder so she doesn't get pulled in and grab him. He had like the, a backpack on. He has like a loop on top. So I grab, grab the loop, loop right? lift him up. And then he lays sort of non-responsive for about 15 <laughs> seconds on the bottom stair. <laughs> Just gassed. Yeah. And it was, it was an ordeal. And as he gets up, you see he's got a backpack on, a parka on, jeans, boots. So he's drenched waterlogged it was a struggle for him to swim and then we kind of think about it some more and his his wife girlfriend travel companion it's like she barely realized he even went in because it was a little bit of a distance where she was standing and she just kind of looked at him with this stunned look of disbelief on her face grabbed him by the shoulders like didn't want to hug him because he stunk and it was just like what happened <laughs> And then he said thank you in, in Italian. And then we were like, now what? We just leave. And we walked away. But they had like five suitcases with them. So I don't know. Picture this. You're either arriving in Venice. This is my question for you. What's worse? You're arriving in Venice and you fall in the canal before you find your hotel. Or you're trying to leave Venice and you fall in the canal as you're trying to find your way to, I guess, the airport or train station. It's worse when you're leaving because at the very least you can throw the clothes to the dry cleaner or something and get it cleaned up and you can wash yourself off and, you know, decompress for a day. But when you're flying out, like you got to take that stank ass clothes with you onto the plane. <laughs> well, so, yeah, the, so at first we were like, oh, they haven't even found their hotel yet. Hotel yet. And then we're like, but what if they're leaving? Like, exactly. <laughs> I, I agree. So then I think about, okay, what's in my backpack when I'm traveling? Like he's probably got laptop and, and maybe some documents mm -hmm. a laptop um and he's wearing his a parka so cell phone all of these things i'm just like man that well, that is passport a tough, tough trip crap stained yeah. passport handing that over to customs yeah. when you come across uh, nasty. that's rough so anyway that was uh that was an interesting experience to so say the least. in the canals of venice like they do little boat tours and stuff right like you can yeah, kind of the gondola yeah. the gon yeah. so does it stink then when you go well, around on that or is it like just you know, certain you areas know how You've been to New York City? Yeah. You know how the odd time you'll walk over a sewer grate and you'll yeah. smell some human excrement? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that to the power of 10. Ooh. Like at times. Like you just... Uh, right. and, and also depending on the tide. If the tide is low, it's stankier. Of course. If the tide is high, it's not as bad. But so then we're like, what is, like, what is it? So I went and I kind of did some research and essentially... My understanding is all hotels and public buildings need to have some sort of holding tank, but all residential gray water, so anything out of the drains, the washing machines, dishwashers, and all residential sewers oh, man. go directly into the canal. People don't go swimming around. They're like locals and stuff. No, there's signs everywhere like do don't not go swim. It's not just don't dive. It's like don't swim. It's like a... <laughs> yeah. Well, that must have been some poor... That poor man. I feel bad I all of a sudden. I know. So it, it's... um. I mean, it's not, we're just telling the story. It's yeah. not like we're calling him out by no, name. No. Well, if anything, you were a hero. You potentially saved this man's life. He could have drowned because he had all that stuff on him. You know, he was tired and exhausted. It's easy to all of a sudden. Well, get, we were laughing down. about it after because we're like, we have. So how how deep are they? And every canal is different. Um, it's almost impossible to know. It wasn't the big canal, the Grand Canal, which sort of snakes its way through Venice, but 
was one of the the side streets, if you will. But you have no idea how deep it is. But we were laughing about, imagine this guy's in there thrashing for like five minutes and all of a sudden he just stands up and it's to his ankles. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. He's like, oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I'm good. Yeah. But I, I, it was panic. And then I was, then we start thinking about like, I, it, the sound was sort of like he stubbed his toe on an uneven rock and then probably went to step and then slipped and fell. It was very quiet. Um, and, and it was... Like you'd expect screaming, there was none. The water was cold. Probably swallowed some oh. some water, and uh, yeah, yeah. So that was that was interesting. That was, but I mean, hey, uh, that's the biggest save you've made since you played in the National Hockey League. Well played, well played. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but anything else uh, noteworthy about your trip to Venice? I mean, are, are you leaving anytime soon? Because I've missed you. I mean, I've, I've barely seen you the past month. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how the next couple episodes go. And then, uh, <laughs> No, I, I, you know, I got back. Well, and then from, like I've, I told you before, we went Florence, Venice, Regina, Saskatchewan. So I hit up all the hot spots, and <laughs> <laughs> really, and I was joking because I was hoping it was Saskatoon because then I could say I went to Paris. It's the Paris, pa- Paris of the yeah. prairies, right? Yeah. But um, <laughs> went to Regina. So basically, we landed at like eleven thirty a.m. on the Tuesday. And then my son Sam and I flew to Regina the next day, the next morning. So I wasn't even home 24 hours. And then I got back this past Sunday. And now I'm here for, feels like a while, four or five weeks anyway. Four or five know. weeks. So, and yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm back, back in the saddle, ready to talk. Sounds good. And if, uh, and if you do have to step away, we will bank some interviews and some interesting stuff. We have some things planned that's going to come over the next few episodes. So we're very much looking forward to the stretch drive. Here. Oh, we've got a big couple of weeks here. Not, we do. Uh, I mean, the team's playing well, but there's a big couple of weeks in Canucks land. So that'll be cool to, to be a part of. You want to get going with the pod? Absolutely. Let's do it. is the Canucks Pod with Safiyar Shah and Alex All. Welcome to this week's edition of the Canucks Pod. Alex All is back in Vancouver again. Excited to talk hockey with you. I mean, it seems like ever since you took some time off and we were able to get together and record a couple of a uh, couple of episodes. We had Kevin Bieksa on. We did a big regroup uh, after the break. But Essentially, since you've been away, the Canucks are reeled off 13 wins in 16 games. I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I do feel like I was... You're here for part of no, that. No, but I was like a weight. Like an you. anvil hanging on the team's oh. necks. Like, it, they couldn't play well. So, I, I just said, you I got to get out of here. No, I absolutely had nothing to do with any of it. The, the good or the bad. But... It's I've been I've been watching both from afar and and some of the time I've spent in Vancouver the last little bit and there are a couple things stand out to me I I do think they're playing well they're being saved some games by some good goaltending but they're also being saved by other really strong individual performances I really like the fact that they're finding different ways to win mm-hmm. games too they can play different styles win different styles I love this home ice advantage they've they've developed that will be tested as as they go out on a on an eastern uh, eastern road trip that starts, I mean, don't even get me started with the schedule. Like San Jose to New York, like I saw that. I'm like, yeah. come on, San Jose to New York, Carolina to Boston to Minnesota. It's absolutely ridiculous, but th- that will be tested a little bit, obviously. But uh, it's nice to sort of have that in your back pocket. That no matter what happens on the road, you feel like you're going home. There's some confidence in that. But they're they're playing some good hockey, and that's that's really good to see. I mean, they're. Up right around the top of the division, they're they're as we record this, they're sitting in first place in the Pacific. Like that's those are some really good things. And when you think about where this team has been the last couple of years, they've had varying degrees of success in terms of how long in the season they can sustain some strong play. The fact they've been able to overcome some tough stretches this year and, and bounce back. There's there's a lot of positive. They won something like nine out of the first 14 games, and that was starting off 0-2 to begin the season. And they got that one good run going. And then they kind of went back and forth through November and in December. And we talked about that rut in December especially. And after that game against Montreal, where they lost 3-1 despite playing well. And the question was, is the season hanging by a thread? And don't you have to start winning games soon before people on the team start losing faith in each other and the system and everything they're trying to do? Because no matter how good your outlook is, no matter how hard you're playing and how good your process is, 
If you don't get results despite your best efforts, eventually it weighs you down and next thing you know, you lose your identity as a team. And if you are trying to foster one, you're not able to do so. And since then, they've been able to just play, what, 90% hockey essentially, winning 13 out of 16 games. And it's foolish to think they're going to continue this pace for the rest of the season. But I think what, what's happened is this team has really found something. And the buzzword we've been using the past couple of years, which is easy to use and it really started with Vegas, buy-in. And it certainly seems like there's a lot of buy-in and belief in this group. And how far can that take a team that's having success like the Canucks are, 51 games into the season, leading the division? They feel good about themselves. They believe in what they're doing. They have high-end talent. How far can that take a team? Well, it can take you a long way. And I'll, I'll go back to kind of what you said at the, at the start there, where it's, they were kind of finding their identity, trying to forge something. And it is a little bit precarious when you you're almost... You're almost at a point where you're confident what you need to do, but then you slip. And how they've been able to bounce out of that sort of slump and, and some of those tough stretches and then sort of regain their footing and, and find it again. And almost that almost, they used that time, that downtime, and then the way they responded, it almost fortified what they need to do. And it, and it solidified, this is, this is the way we need to play. And you can see them really taking off with that now. So that's one aspect. It, it can be dangerous when you struggle, when you haven't quite found your way yet as a, as a group. And there's some very key players on this team, uh, needless to say, that are young and they're inexperienced. And so for them to be able to get back on track is really important. And then that plays into the buy-in that it's, it's not, oh, we got away from it and let's just try and figure out and everyone do their own thing and do something different and see if that works. Instead, it's no, let's trust what this, these coaches are telling us. Let's play that way and we're going to have success. So the more that happens, then it just it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that now you know that's what we need to go back to. And it, it simplifies that process of any time that you, you struggle at all, you know what to go back to. You know what's, what your path out of it is. And that is a really important thing as, as, a, as a young group progresses and finds its identity and builds towards something bigger than just one season and building into a team that can compete on a yearly basis. You need to have that type of identity. You need to forge that. And that, that's what this season really is about for me. I, I look at the last couple of years as sort of laying a foundation, obviously adding some key pieces. And this year is more about, all right, we're solidifying the identity of this group, what we need to do to be successful. That's sort of the language I'm sure that's being being used within the locker room and with the coaches. And, and we're seeing the results of that. And so that buy-in can go a long way because it's not just confidence it's not just confidence in the moment it is it's the solution to when things go bad and that is something that's really important not only can you look at something and say all right this is this is where we went wrong this is where we went off course but it's also the path back and that's the power in that buy-in when the message is strong and it's something that the the group truly believes in is is the right way to play and there was a certain level of fragility to this team earlier on, like especially through November and in December. And we saw it even a glimpse of it against Tampa Bay when they got down in the second period. Next thing you know, everything just fell apart. But since then, they've been a lot stronger mentally in games. And even in games where it looks like, you know, the roof's about to cave in, they've been able to bounce back. And a big part of that is they're getting a lot of saves. And we get your goaltenders, especially Jacob Markstrom playing as well as he is. It keeps you in games and... For instance, last night against San Jose, they only needed one period, one good period from the team to win. And that doesn't happen if Markstrom doesn't make the saves. And we'll get into that two-pat stack save he made, I mean, which was incredible and how good he's been in a second. But when I look at this team and, and how they're evolving, that confidence seems to be there now. That fragility is, is shaking off. And that leads me to believe that even if they're not going to play at this pace the rest of the season, I think they found something at this point. Well, they definitely found something in net. Like... Markstrom is is playing very well, and and you're right. Like I, you know, in Markstrom's early days here in Vancouver, it was it was almost the opposite, right? It was like, okay, you'd have a good game, but now there's this one bad goal that just sort of would deflate the group. And I think about the you know a couple of the massive saves in San Jose, but really the way he's played, it's like those are all but gone. The odd time there is a weak goal, it's like it's this obscure anomaly that you're just like, oh, that's no big deal. Like that happens to everybody. And he's playing at such a, an incredibly high level right now that it, you, you do get the sense that no matter what happens, they're going to be able to be competitive because of the goaltending. 
But it, it, I like a lot of things about this club. It's it's not just him and and the way that they're they're able to bounce back. Like you mentioned that Tampa game, I I thought the the fact that Tampa and the game against the Panthers didn't snowball into something worse mm-hmm. is a is a sign of strength. And it kind of goes back to what we just touched on in the last topic or last point there, where it's like it's the the buy in, the ability to get out of a tough stretch and not let it fester, not let it snowball into a long streak. And that has sort of been what has undone this club the last couple of years. They've had good stretches, but then when things go bad, it seems like it's just going to last forever. And they've been able to respond and bounce out of those those tough spots. So I like that a lot in the way that they've been able to, to with some of the veteran leadership they have, with the goaltending, with the coaching and the messaging, they've been able to avoid those prolonged slumps. Before we start breaking down Markstrom a bit more, because I can't wait to get your perspective on it, Aldi, I did want to spend a couple minutes on Travis Green, who took a lot of criticism, especially through December. And we talked about how even if it's not his fault, if they don't start winning games again, eventually it leads to a lack of belief in the coach and these things get out of hand. But he was able to keep the message with those guys. He was still able to get them to turn around. And the fact they faced that adversity through November and December and got through it, I'm sure strengthened this group and their belief in being able to overcome challenges that come their way. And one of the things that I noticed from last night, from the game against the San Jose Sharks post-game, and he mentioned, after the second period, we didn't play well the first couple periods. I said to the guys, all you got to do is be 15 to 20% better, each of you. That's all you got to do. And part of that is only one little thing. But the more I hear from Travis, the more I talk to him, the more I talk to players and people around the organization, he gives players tangible markers for them to try to achieve. It's not this whole, like, I'm just going to yell, yell at you and, and tell you to play better. You got to play harder. He makes things relatable enough and easy enough to understand, and they don't seem like this big obstacle to overcome. That's my message as a player. How important is it to have a coach that can give you something and not, so he doesn't sound like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's telling you something that it's easy for you to understand and apply. Well, it's important because you, the other key thing I think about when I, when I hear you say that that's his message, right? Like it's something, not only is it tangible, but it's, it feels attainable, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's not, it's not something that's out of the realm of possibility that I'm sitting there between periods as a player and I, you know, I look myself in the mirror. I'm like, okay, I can be 10, 15% better like that. That isn't this massive undertaking. It's just me being a little bit sharper. It's me just slightly better execution. And, you know, it's, if, if it's in terms of battles, it's winning one more out of every 10. Like it's, it's something that is, does feel achievable. And it, it takes me back a couple of years ago to when I was working with some pro goalies and kind of posed the question to these guys and said, you know, because obviously it's hard as a goaltender not to get caught up in statistics and what your save percentage is. Yet, if that's what you're focused on, then it's a recipe for disaster because then you're, all, you're just stressing on the shot clock all game and all these things. But at the end of the day, like when you're talking about a pro and you're talking about a guy who's maybe going to arbitration or he's trying to, you know, he's negotiating a new contract, the safe percentage and that, that raw data is important and those numbers matter. And yes, we can look deeper into it and, and look at uh, sort of expected safe percentage based on shot difficulty and all those types of things. But the, the end of the day, the better your safe percentage, the better off everyone is. And you kind of flip that conversation and you're like, okay, what if, like, what if, out of every 10 shots, you made one more save. Like, mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't that feel attainable, yeah. right? And it's the same type of thing. It's this small little incremental thing that if you do it regularly, it has massive, massive results on the big big picture, on the, you know, in the, the phase of the whole team or or as your whole season as a goaltender. And so I love that way that, that Travis Green has been messaging to the players. And, and then good coaches realize what's working in terms of how he communicates and then almost doubles down on that right and and goes stays away from sort of the things that don't work and and this is part of the transition in coaching this is part of the transition in the way uh the the leadership of a team the coaching staff the management and the way they're going to talk to this today's modern athlete you have to do it in a way that works and resonates and that's some that's a great example of that because i look at what happened in the third period Jay Beagle, a couple of good shifts. Brandon Sutter, a couple of good shifts. Pedersen, the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I almost, I almost yeah. messed that one up. But like, you start seeing each one of those players. The Venice Canal, a couple of good uh, shifts. A couple, a couple of good. <laughs> but it, you could see it being applied in that third period. They were far better, but it wasn't like they all of a sudden figured out something different. Each player did something a little extra, and it led to a victory. Now, when you're playing a really good hockey team. 
you can't afford to play 20 good minutes and win. But against teams like the Sharks, the Red Wings, they've shown that they can do that. And that shows a separation between them being a good team against average and below average teams. The next challenge is being more consistent against good teams. But they've, you know, it's not like they're not beating good teams. Somebody asked the other day, they're like, well, what is their record against good Western Eastern Conference teams? Well, they're one and one against Pittsburgh. They're one and one against Washington. So they are still able to hold their own against the better teams. But when I look at how they've kind of evolved as a club, I also kind of think of what their goal is. Because to me right now, considering they're sitting first in a division, they have the best goal differential, the most goals for, the second fewest amounts of goals against in the division, the regulation overtime victories are the highest in the division, best winning percentage. I'm pretty sure that the goal in the locker room isn't to just get into the playoffs at this point. It's It's gone to something bigger and greater. And isn't the most powerful thing for a locker room thinking you have a chance not just to make the playoffs, but also do something once you get in. And from what I can gather, even though they won't go out and talk about this now because you don't want to set your sights too far, especially to the media. But to me, it seems like their goal isn't just to make the playoffs at this point. And it probably shouldn't be because you're sh- showing a new reality for your club. Well, as a as a player, once... Once the playoffs seem attainable in a season and seem realistic, absolutely, you're you're thinking about doing some damage in the playoffs. And there's always this balance between getting too far ahead of yourself and, and saying it's you know Stanley Cup or bust, but and and not having high expectations. Right? You have to you have to be somewhere in the middle. And no doubt about it, these guys believe that with with the goaltending they're getting and with some of the elite talent they have. And what we've seen in the National Hockey League, I, I believe every team that gets in has a chance. Like I know people talk about well, there's only like a handful of true contenders, yet almost every year a team that wouldn't have been considered a contender at some point in the year either makes the final or actually wins. So you look at it and you say, hey, like this is, there is a real possibility that the team can do some damage. And once you get on a roll, especially if you're getting good goaltending, uh, anything can happen. And so as a, as a group, as a player, you absolutely believe that and, Again, like the 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 way they've been able to win games when they're not at their best, the way they've been able to rise to the challenge against some really good opposition and, and play some really good games, and and even if they don't win, are are a bounce or two away from being right there. Like they're in competitive games, they have a chance to win those games. As a player, that's what you want. You because you you don't have to win every game. You just have to feel like you have a chance in a lot of these games, and that's for the most part what the Canucks have been able to do. So within the locker room, absolutely, they are believing that they can do more. But by no means does that mean they're satisfied. They're they're constantly pushing for for more out of their group, for more out of each other, and and it, it's the sky's the limit in that there is this unlimited potential to do some good things based on some luck for sure. Who mm-hmm. maybe maybe loses or gets upset or whatever it may be. And every year that playoff story, it's a that journey is writes its own story in terms of how it unfolds. There's some years where all the top seeds get eliminated in the first round and this door gets opened up for, for whatever club to go on a Cinderella run. And, and you could look back on it. You're like, oh, that's, that was their path. That was their opportunity. Yet you have to seize that opportunity. And, and that's the same with any player trying to make it in the league. And that's the same with any team trying to burst through a door. You have to seize the opportunity. You have to see that light and you have to find a way to, to, to grab it and just however small that opening may be, just burst through. Because right now, you look at the Pacific Division, and I'm sure all five teams in the hunt are thinking the same thing. Yeah. Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Arizona, and Vegas. Well, they all have things you like, right? So right. as a team, you look at it, and you're like, all right, if, if this is going for us, we, this is better than the competition. This, we have this as an advantage. One team is getting to the Western Conference Final from the Pacific, or maybe a team crosses over, whether it's Winnipeg or Nashville to get, get their act together by the end of the season. But all these teams are essentially in the same tier, yeah. and they all probably look at this and say there's opportunity, not just to make the playoffs, but to make a run. We don't know if we'll get to the Cup Final, but the Western Conference Final certainly seems attainable. It's winning two rounds within this division against teams that are very similarly stacked. And to me, I can sense that the club sees this opportunity as well, because they also realize the cap situation being what it is, the number of players who are free agents, RFAs, UFAs, they won't be able to bring everybody back. And, you know, I heard Elliot Friedman talk about this when he joined us on the program with Andrew Walker, 4-7 to seven on Sportsnet uh, earlier this week, that there's a sense in this locker room that the guys kind of know that this is their one run together as a group and they want to make the most of it. And when you see you having success, you look at the division, the way it's kind of stacking up and how you stack up against the teams in that division – they should be pretty confident about what they can accomplish. Because to me right now, 
Vancouver should be the favorite to win the division based on where they're at right now. Well, I, and I, I don't disagree. Like you, you look at it and you, you know, Vegas isn't, doesn't seem as scary as they would have last year. And, and obviously the way they had that really improbable run in their first season. So there's, there's something there that's not the same. Calgary's not the team they were last year. Uh, as much as, as much as Edmonton has McDavid and Drysaddle, you still wonder like, is that going to be sustainable? Is that enough? Uh, could you game, could they be game planned? Like, there's so much, there's so much in Arizona, another team where it's like, all right, they've, they've done some good things, but, uh, you know, you lose your goaltender and you've kind of sputtered since the, the Taylor Hall trade. Are you able to really keep this going or are you just going to kind of fall off and be satisfied with taking a little step? Like there's, there's so many things about all these clubs and, and those teams are looking at Vancouver mm-hmm. and they see something that, that they like about their group over them. Right. Yeah. So you absolutely, as a, as a player, it's interesting, like you, you never, no matter what, never get the same same group back. And it's it's one thing I always remind the kids in minor hockey. Like, but when you when you're going into the last game of the year and you know it's the last game, like that, I don't know that the kids or the players really kind of wrap their head around the fact that this group will never be together again. Like this is this is take a look around. This is it. Mm-hmm. This group will never play together again. And that's just just the way it is. Somebody somebody moves. Somebody whatever doesn't want to play hockey anymore, doesn't want to move up in the same level. And, and, and as kids grow up, they, they get sort of funneled and filtered into different streams. But obviously in the National Hockey League, it's even, even St. Louis, who was kind of able to keep their, their group intact, there's still changes. And yeah. you can never keep that same roster. So for the Canucks, they, they like what they're doing. These players, they realize that there's going to be, there's going to be shakeup for shakeup's sake. There's going to be movement because of contracts. There's all these things in play. And if you if you want to make something with this group, you you got to make the most of it. So it's it's kind of there's two things you're looking at there. You're looking at this this sort of strange time in the Pacific Division, and we saw it last year with um, sort of the down season and and how late the Canucks stayed in the hunt, but it was because it was a down year. Um, this year it's it's unique in that no one is no one's running away with it. Everyone's tightly bunched, so that also means the points are more evenly dispersed. So it's it's super competitive, but no one's, no one's seen as this like formidable force. Um, you're, you're seeing the fall off of, of teams that have perennially been good. The California teams that for years dominated it all. They're just at the bottom kind of looking up, trying to figure out where they're going. Who knows how long that will last, that they'll sort of just carry on and sort of in obscurity. And so you, you want to make the most of it because at any point, McDavid could get a supporting cast around him. That means they're in the playoffs every year for 10 years. Right. And, and at any point, something else could happen on any of these teams. That means they're what the Canucks were for a long time, where it's like you just you can't shake them. You have to go through them, and that makes it really difficult. And it's not to say the Canucks are a favorite to win the Stanley Cup, and that's why the group feels like it's their one shot. It's about how much chemistry they have, how good they they feel about each other as a group, and they want to make the most of this opportunity. And the other aspect is the Canucks clearly have flaws defensively, give up a lot of chances. But when Jacob Markstrom makes the saves he's been making. He covers that up, and the Canucks can score goals with the best of them in the National Hockey League. And if you get saves, you can score a lot of goals. I mean, who knows what can happen? Well, there's no team that there's no. I mean, as good as as good as St. Louis was defensively last year, and especially in the playoffs. I mean, they had great goaltending. Yeah, like you don't win without great goaltending. And so, when you have that going for you, that is that is a big plus. And you know, thinking back to my career and how, how difficult it is to even make the playoffs, let alone get out of the first round and then to go all the way and actually have a chance at winning. I think organizations that look at it and say, all right, well, this, like when, they, when you talk about windows, when you talk about going for it this year or not, or like, do we believe we can win? There's this constant balance of you have to, you have to be as all in as possible in the moment, I believe, without completely mortgaging your future. Like you have to, walk that line mm-hmm. for sure but you can't say oh like to me if a, if a, if Jim Benning were to say at the deadline oh this isn't a year worth trying to me that's a fireable offense mm-hmm. like you look you're a general manager your job is to try and win and I'm not saying he's got to go and, and trade uh, you know a bunch of top prospects to get one key veteran but like you, you're always balancing that and you have to give the, the group the opportunity to, to compete and you have to try to compete because it's so difficult, you just you, you're one injury away, you're one you're one freak thing away, right? An accident, whatever it may be, from not being competitive anymore because of what could possibly happen to your roster. 
you have to give yourself that chance. You have to give your group the chance to compete in years that you have success, that you show some chemistry, like all those things you touched on. And what they can do at the deadline is going to be largely dependent on how much money they can shift out as well because of their cap situation. But I can't fault the organization because there's a rational argument to be made considering what the Pacific's looking like, how your team's going on a roll, and despite having some flaws, they're scoring a lot of goals, they're getting a lot of saves, they stack up well against the rest of the teams in their division, there is an opportunity that why would you not be aggressive at the deadline? But I think the biggest challenge is, can they move some money out so they can move some money in? That's going to be the challenge for Jim Benning if he's trying to make an addition at the deadline. But if the team feels this good about their chances, do you think there's an expectation from players, and not just the Canucks, but just in general, let's just say this is Team A in this situation is there an expectation from those players leading up to deadline that a team adds something? Is that, that it, important? It, it's That's such a crazy thing, right? Because it, de- it depends who you are. It depends what they add. Like at the end of the day, um, the top end guys, yeah, they, they, want, they want to have as good a roster as they can. But there's, we got to remember, there's some guys in the lineup who some additions mean they either don't play or their, their roles are reduced. So... There is balance to that. What I what I believe is you got to look and, and say, hey, where are your holes? What can we acquire? And is the price right? You know, do you do we have some some issues on the with depth on the back end? Is that can we address it in a way that that makes sense and we're not giving up too much future that makes us you know tangibly better tomorrow than we were today? Um, depth at center. It's funny. I think the the Canucks as much as they have depth at center. They don't have organizational depth at center. Mm-hmm. That that to me is is an issue, um, and I also think that the way the depth at center stacks up from a financial point of view also doesn't make a lot of sense long term. Like, how do you, especially as Pedersen needs a raise, and like, how do you, how do you have your third and fourth line center making that much, and then you've got a guy like Goddard who's showing he's you know improving and getting like, but do you really have a guy if someone goes down, you can call it for the minors and play. Not right now. Right. So that that's that's another issue. Mm-hmm. So some of these moves that the Canucks might make, the average fan might not really well, that's not that's not who cares. Like you you picked up a fifth line center essentially or whatever. Why do you need that? You got Godet. But at the end of the day, do you really have somebody you can just call up and say, You're now our fourth line center for two, three weeks or two months? Do you have someone like that? Probably not. So that's that's an area. Um, the back end, you know, we're seeing some emergence of guys like Brogan Rafferty and Yolevi's finally healthy. And um, you know, is that as important as it as it once was? Maybe not. But there is obviously holes you want to address. Um, I also never answered your question earlier about the goaltending. You brought up Markstrom, and I steered away from it. I don't know why. I usually want to talk goaltending no, all day. And we'll get to it here right now because the one thing I want to get into, and we'll do this on the other side. Jacob Markstrom, if you look at his save percentage, 917, that's impressive. It's good because considering league average is 908. But there's proprietary data. I haven't seen it, but I've talked to people that have access to it. That essentially says Jacob Markstrom is an elite level goalie, perhaps one of the top goalies in the league in the top three. We'll delve into that. That doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise you. And we'll delve into has Jacob Markstrom turned into an elite level number one netminder that can take your franchise deep. We'll discuss right here on the Canucks pod. Satyar Shaw with Alex Ald on Sportsnet 650. Eric Chernak on the left side into the slot for Paquette. Stopped by Markstrom. Then a rebound chance for Kalord. And Markstrom made another unbelievable pad save. Passes right circle for Truba. And a great pad stack save by Jacob Markstrom. To drive the front of the goal, backhand pass in front, and a great oh right toe save by Jacob Markstrom. He stoned Jake Voracek. The back to the line, Dumbo with a drive. Stopped in front, and Markstrom makes two oh great saves on the goodness. rebound. He robbed Luke Cunning and Jason Zucker. Ovechkin in clean, shoots right on, and he's stopped by Markstrom with a glove. The Vancouver goaltender comes up big, eye to eye with Alex Ovechkin. Shellman down the left wing, passes right circle. Kevin oh LeBeck is robbed by Jacob Markstrom. Markstrom slid across to his left. Kicked his left leg high in the air and took away a sure goal for Kevin LeBanc. Welcome back to the Canucks pod. Alex Ald, I'm Satyar Shaw here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks red hot in the year 2020, leading the division. And their MVP, as much as we can make a case for a number of players as MVP, it's becoming more and more clear it is Jacob Markstrom. And Aldi uh, kind of teased it at the end of the first segment here. 
But there is data that we don't have access to. But if you talk to people that have access to it, they essentially say Jacob Markstrom has been one of the top two or three goalies in the league. And he should be now considered an elite level netminder. Well, I know in the past couple of years on, on Canuck Central, we used to do that show together, Sat. We we talked to Steve Valiquette and he's one of the guys out there with ClearSight Analytics who tracks, I mean, I, I, what was it? It was like every scoring chance, it was like 30 points of data on each yeah, one. Like, like how many east-west passes. Yeah, and the so, traditional analytics do not delve into those things. Right, so it's it's not just where this shot is taken from. Like high danger, like, oh, this point on the ice is harder than this point. Yes, there's some there's some validity to that. But also the fact that does the player, or does the goaltender need to move east-west? Do they need to move across the middle of the rink? How many times, how many touches, all the different types of things you could think about when it comes to the shot to make it more difficult Traffic obviously is one, but even just the type of shot, how quickly it's released, all those sorts of things. And some of this data out there is saying that like Markstrom's playing at a level that very few others can even come close to. And so I always look at anything that is statistical and anything that's in the advanced stats world, and I, I look for it and then I compare it to sort of my eye test. And because I don't think you can just look at one or the mm-hmm. other and say this is this is fact. Um, something can look really good, but then there's there's information that shows you maybe it's not as great. And but to me, they line up. This guy looks like he's playing unreal. He looks the way I want a goaltender to look. In that he's very rarely does he turn on pucks. He's very few pucks go through him, which was something that plagued him early on in his time here in Vancouver. And and was was uh, like I said earlier, we. I mean, it was almost every game there was a goal. You're just like, how does that go in? And now it's the it's the complete opposite. It's like, how does that not go in? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he's playing at such a high level that that alone this season gives this team unbridled potential. But then you look at it even further and you're just like, from a contractual point of view, the guy's a pending UFA. Like, how do you make this all fit in a team that already has cap issues and you have you have – multiple guys whose contracts are set to explode over the next couple seasons. Markstrom's age, how do you make that all fit? But for the time being, you've got one of, if not the best goaltender in the league in the way he is playing today. And that is a big advantage when you're talking about other teams in the Pacific, other teams in the Western Conference, just other teams in the NHL and how you're going to do damage in the playoffs. Markstrom stays healthy and is able to play this way. Who knows? Because this isn't just like a six-month run or the season run. This is something that clicked around Christmas of last year. It's just over a year now. Is this yeah. a new reality then? Is this well, I think it was goalie? December 1st, yeah. right? Like I, I think it was, it, I, I believe that it is. And especially when you look at, when you look at that now people are saying, you're, people out there are questioning Vegas' goaltending. So if you can flip on Flurry that way so quickly... Right and say, all right, all of a sudden now Fleury's not what he once was. Then, to me, a, over a year sample size on Markstrom, absolutely. It and and it's it's that year sample size of him playing at this level comes on the heels of him continually improving year over year. And then just this sort of everything came together mid season last year with the addition of Ian Clark in the off season. Um, at the at the start of of last season, and now you're you're seeing this this rhythm to his play. You're seeing the rhythm to the work in terms of his preparation, and he's playing at a really really high level. So, when I think about how quickly you can say, "All right, a guy isn't elite anymore," you have to almost take the same approach to a player who's showing he's consistent over a period of of six months, a year. This is a guy in the moment right now who I believe you can win with. The only question comes down to the contract, all right? right. And, and, and considering he just turned thirty. You know, and, and that's not old by any stretch of the imagination, but how many years and how much money are you willing to or prepared to give a goalie like that? Because he's kind of in, in between. If he was two years younger and he was playing like this, it's an, it's an easy decision. Yeah. You, know, you go six times six even and you don't feel bad about it. It makes it a bit trickier. But the question is, considering the fact that he hasn't played a ton for a guy his age, because it took him a while to be established as a number one goaltender, does the lack of wear on his tires give you more confidence that he can be good for another four or five years? Or is that a dangerous game for any goalie that enters that frame? Well, it's exactly what I just touched on. We've, you've seen it happen mm-hmm. where guys fall off quickly. Um, I, I believe, and it, to me, there's more to it than just Jacob Markstrom. It's the position in the organization. 
the position in the organization of goaltending goes beyond the athletes. It goes into coaching as well. Um, Ian Clark, what's the status with him? What, what's his long-term future with the team? On one hand, I'm more confident investing longer in Jacob Markstrom if I have Ian Clark under contract because there's a symmetry to what they're doing. But not just the fact that, like, I think Markstrom's at a point where he's, you need to own your game. You need to end up being your own best goalie coach. A goalie coach can help you for sure. Markstrom is at a place where he, he understands his game a lot better than he did two years ago. So you have this thing where you say, all right, if, if we have Ian Clark, then I'm more confident investing in Markstrom. But then at the same time, if you have Ian Clark, do you need that goaltender as much? Because can someone else fill the shoes mm-hmm. that much faster? And, and are you more confident that the rest of your goaltenders will develop? It's this interesting paradigm where if you, you have the coach, you need the goalie less, but the goalie's playing so well, you, you want to reward him and you want to stay with that known quantity. And so it all plays in together. Key thing on technical play, though, and the way Markstrom is playing there's less wear and tear on his body now because there's far less of that that turning and opening up as he skates, the wear and tear on the hips, um, his posture and his butterfly is is the way he moves, he's far mo- more closed in, in terms of his body position. So there's less torque, there's less wear and tear through the hips and groins especially. So that reduces injuries, it reduces wear and tear, in theory should prolong longevity. So you you kind of balance all of those things, but I, I think the one thing is Markstrom is he's so competitive and he's he's really emerged as a true leader in this group, and that that has weight as well. There's value in that. The interesting thing about that save he made against San Jose, the two pad stack, he just comes across the butter stack, the, butter, I mean, butterfly to two pad stack, uh, yeah. an incredible save. Is is Cam's that his legs like pancakes? Pancakes, Jemima. Only thing missing is some <laughs> some syrup, some Cool Whip. Yeah. Oh, anyway, <laughs> but is he merging the technical side with? just find a way to make a save like do you see that level of confidence because i always defer to guys like you for the goaltending position it's such a hard position to really evaluate and i've heard former nhl players that played defense and forward like i don't know how to evaluate goalies it's hard to evaluate but it seems from my perspective i want to find out from you that he's now at a point where he's so confident and technically sound that he's also able to just react make reactionary saves as well it's like he's combining his athletic traits from before with a technical side now and is that one reason why he's gone to that next level i that's that's a great point and i i i believe so and so what what i look at is we've and i'll look take a bigger sort of holistic approach on this the goaltending position especially in canada what we've done is we've through people like me i mean the way i was trained is when i'd say turn pro um and then what I would take to goalie coaching, it's almost, all right, how can we improve players with the mo- give the most improvement with the least amount of work? And skating, some good habits, but also some repetition. And through that repetition, you become a little bit robotic. But you need a balance. You need that structure. You need that continuity and how you're going to play. You need to, You need to have the puck when it's shot from a certain area. You need to sort of do the same thing over and over again so that there's less, you know, fewer variables. At the same time, that on, on the flip side comes predictable, right? So really good, really good athletes, really good offensive players can, can predict what a goal is going to do. They can create a fake that, and a cell that then, you know, basically gets the goalie to bite and exposes something. So what we've done in Canada is we've sort of created this army of good goaltenders. And what I've seen come out of Europe a lot lately is these really good athletes who understand more than just the position of goal. They understand general athleticism. And I think Markstrom is a guy who was always considered very good in terms of as a prospect. There was years where he was considered the best goaltender not in the NHL. Found himself in a horrible situation in Florida in terms of an organization lost. Um, you know, there was like multiple goalie coaches. And then when he came to Vancouver, it was like he'd had, I remember at one point reading like how many goalie coaches he had in so many years. It was like, no wonder he hasn't, he's sort of stagnated, right? And now all of a sudden he's really got some traction. So what you've done is you've taken that competitiveness and you've taken that instinctive ability to, to just make the save. And you've added some world-class technique to it 
that doesn't take away from those key elements that he had before. And I think that that's the big difference with what the really good goalie coaches are doing now. They aren't saying, hey, you have to play this way, even though maybe it takes away from what's worked from you before. And I think that's what some goalie coaches are guilty of doing. No, no, you have to do this because this is the way I want it to look. Yeah, but I can't see the puck anymore. I don't care. You need to do this. And Ian Clark's very much not that. Um, he very much, it, it, there's some key fundamentals to what he wants to do. There is some framework. There is some structure. There's some rules. You arrive to that with logic and with him as a coach. And so what ends up happening is you you build a system that you really believe in. And then that combativeness, that, that instinct that Markstrom's always possessed, it doesn't go away. It actually is pushed to the forefront because now the structure that is in place is more of a, uh, it's a base to work from rather than a hindrance, rather mm-hmm. than something that gets in the way. So now he's, he's so much quieter when he moves. So he's arriving set and square. So now his instincts can just take over because there's less noise going on in terms of his movement and his, and his safe selection and all those sorts of things. So that, that's exactly, I, to me, it's exactly what has happened with him is what you just said, where he's, it's this perfect marriage of it all. And he's at a point where he's so comfortable technically that he can just, the rest of it can just sort of shine and come to the forefront. And that is truly what makes the best goalies elite is they have that next level of instinct, that next level of awareness. And when I look back at the goalies I watched growing up that were the best, and I think of, you know, through the 90s, you look at, you got Patrick Waugh, you got Dominic Hasek, Marty Brodeur. Those guys all played very different styles, but they were all good at the same thing, which was seeing the puck mm-hmm. and knowing, and they seemed to know what was going to happen next all the time. And those instincts, as much as the game has changed and the position has has changed, what has made the best goalies the best has stayed the same. And that is the ability to, to be ahead of the play. And that comes from, from really good footwork, solid skating, your, your structure and your, your composure in that moment. And, and Jacob Markstrom there, he's, he's at that point where his instincts are really shining through. And that, that saves a good example of that. There's been a couple other ones where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm here, but I might as well put some stank on it. Yeah. It look better too, right? <laughs> the confidence is sky high. And just look at the foundation of the team all of a sudden because everything yep. begins with the foundation. Markstrom's playing like an elite number one goalie, franchise goalie, whatever you want to call it. But he's playing as an elite number one goaltender. Quinn Hughes is playing like a franchise defenseman as a rookie. Elias Pettersson's playing like a franchise centerman. That's your foundation. That's where everything begins with. Now, there's so much more to being a good team. There's so many other factors that come into it. They have better defensemen overall. They have more depth up front. They have a second line. They have a first line. They have guys who can provide a little scoring. Line. Yeah, they have an insurance yeah. line. And, you know, Louis Erickson's been a, a really fascinating story with how he's helped uh, Pearson and, er- and uh, Horvat defensively and how that line's taken off. But... It starts with those three players. There shouldn't be a coincidence that the Canucks can win a lot of games, even games where they're not at their best as a team, because what happened against San Jose? Well, Markstrom stood on his head. Quinn Hughes, one magical, incredible moment in the first period, banks it off the board, spins away. I mean, he doesn't walk the line. He dances the line, and then he fires a clapper, and it goes past Marty Jones, and that brings you back to the game, ties it up. The third period, Pedersen plays at a next level. All these other guys take another step, and they win the game. But you see the difference elite-level players can make. All you need is one moment from Quinn Hughes. He brings you back in the game. You have an elite goalie, and he helps you keep helps keep you in the game. You have Pedersen and all those other guys up front. Like even if you're not at your best for 60 minutes, those are the great equalizers. Well, you, you think of all the great the great teams in any sport, the teams that you know whether it's uh, a team in the NFL that runs and goes 16 and 0, or you know I think about the, those great Red Wings teams, like most wins in a year, they weren't at their best every game. Right, like really good teams actually are able to win games when they're very far from their best. They, they know how to find the moment that makes the difference, own that moment, and then that carries the day. And I think that that's something where, as a, as a team evolves and as a team gets good and, and you know starts sort of taking steps towards elite, you have to find ways to pick up points where there's you have no business in it, or else you'll just be a team that's sort of stuck in the middle. Then you'll be a middle of the pack type of group, and and so. To me, I don't. I don't look at teams that can find ways to win games with that. Maybe they don't deserve it, or in the in the traditional sense, or they get outplayed. That isn't a weakness. That's a strength. Being able to pick up points when you have no business picking up points, or being able to win games when you only you only play a period. Now, as a coach, it drive it would drive me nuts, right? Like you're like, no, like we want to have perfect sixty minute games. Well, those don't exist. 
because guess what? You got another really good team on the other side trying to do their thing. And, and if, if both teams go at their best for 60 minutes, they probably both deserve to win. Well, that's not the way it's going to work, right? So you, you have to find a way to separate. And oftentimes, finding, finding ways to pick up points in those types of games. Or, and we look at some years where the difference to, between a team making the playoffs or not is, is how many shootout wins they have, right? It's just those few extra points. You, you played exactly the exact same team game. You could have the, but a completely different outcome because it's one point swing in the standings based on one save or one shot in the shootout. So you have to find ways to to find those points and to just sort of eke those out. And if you're able to do that consistently, then those really add up. Because if you do that for ten games, that's ten more points in the standings, and or or more if it's if it's the difference between a win and an outright loss, right? So I I like that about the Canucks that they're able to do it. And you're right, you've you've got key pieces now in so many key power positions that the odds of you being able to do that more often go up. And, and that's the main reason why in games where they're not at their best, you're able to win because guys like Pedersen, guys like Hughes and guys like Jacob Markstrom will provide more production than expected because of them being that good. So you never apologize for having elite players. You don't apologize for having great goaltending. And we didn't even get to Thatcher Demko, who's also seeming to get his game into gear as uh, well. And, and, and him, I know we don't have a ton of time, but him playing well is just going to help Markstrom be even better. Mm-hmm. Like the, the ability to rest, the ability to strategize and think about plotting out the course of your, the rest of your season from a rest and practice point of view rather than just we need points, we got to play the guy or play a hunch. That is so, so key for a team that's trying to continue to climb up the standings. A couple more things we want to get to uh, before we get out of here. Uh, Matthias Olin, former teammate of yours, is going into the BC Sports Hall of Fame. He joined Canuck Central, our former show this week, and talked to Scott Rintoul and Vic Nazar about his career in Vancouver and, and everything that went. I mean, you played with Matthias Olin. The word that I can best describe him as is a warrior from the outside looking yep. in. What's the best way you can describe Matthias Olin? Well, I, I agree with that. I, I think that um, he, what stands out to me about Oli was coming in as a young guy, coming into training camp and after practice in training camp, sort of preseason, going into the gym and thinking, all right, like I'm, I'm just going to kind of stretch, whatever, like it's been a long day, but also kind of being like, I don't, I don't want to be the first guy to leave. So I kind of want to be around here and <laughs> to be honest, do something mm-hmm. that makes it look like I'm being productive. And I remember going in there after a long day and, and he's just on the bike and there's like a puddle of sweat around him. And that was like every day. He rode the bike, he rode the bike. And it's just the, that made me realize like, wow, like how far you have to go in terms of your fitness and, and taking care of yourself to be ready to play each and every night. Uh, absolute warrior for sure. And I, I also think somebody is, as good as he was and as good as, um, you know, his career was, it's like you also look at it, you're like, man, and I don't mean this as any form of disrespect, like it could have been so much more. Yeah. You think about his, his uh, near career ending injury early on in his career with his eye and, mm-hmm. and just who knows, uh, very, very good player, very good teammate and just a phenomenal person. He was outstanding, and he had more offensive skill than people realize. He was yeah. really good at jumping up into the play. He could have had a hard shot on the power play, but he played within himself, right? Like, he knew yeah. what he had to do, and there were very few players in that era. I mean, and it was an overlap with Scott Stevens, the way he would stand the line. Yeah. But, I mean, when it comes to Vancouver, I don't think I can think of a better defenseman who would stand up guys on the blue line than Matias Ola. He just crushed guys coming across the blue line. And I, I would say he probably he probably sacrificed offensive numbers and offensive fame mm-hmm. for what, what he believed, what he was being asked to do and, and what he believed sort of was best for the team. Like I, I, you look back and I'm like, okay, that, that sort of run and gun type of thing. Like if, if Ed Jovanovsky wouldn't have been in the fold, maybe Ole would have felt more pressure to be up in the play even more, even though the, you know, the D under Crow had, had the green light that the D was always joining on the weak side, but uh, who knows? Right. And, and I think that, that that's commendable too to be like all right this maybe i could have a few more points but this is what the team needs out of me and he was a tremendous leader he'd let other guys get that shine offensively he let brent sopel jump into the play he yep. allowed sammy Sallow to do do those things and he would be completely content playing the all-around role and there are certain sacrifices players make him mean, you still uh, compensated handsomely for it but he's one of those guys who decided to do whatever it did help do whatever he could to help the team as opposed to doing whatever he could to help his own stats you know what else i think about matthias olin 
his car was always clean. <laughs> always. Not an easy <laughs> really? thing in Vancouver. Yeah, he would, he'd roll into the rink. Early on, it was like a, a Jaguar XK. Mm. And then he had uh, sort of one Range Rover, changed the body style. He had that. But it was always. He'd always drop the kids at school, get a car wash. <laughs> Always. Yeah. You're yeah. like, oh, tell me, was he a good leader? Was he a good guy? Yeah. No, clean car. Meticulous when it comes yeah. to clean, cleaning his car. It actually makes me feel bad. My car is a dump. My wife won't even drive it. Or like come in and she's like, I just know. Well, at this time of year, like... With it, kids? It's hard. Well, yeah. I mean, driving other people's kids around? Mm. Some of the stuff you find under the seat? Jeez. Yeah, I can imagine that. Empty your half-drank chocolate milk, folks. <laughs> That's gross. It's like, it's not, it doesn't stink <laughs> until the spring. And then it's like... Uh. You guys just take it and get it detailed. Maybe that's what you're going to drop I it should. off. Maybe if you guys are looking for a gift for me. Get you a detail? I would, I would yeah. take a detail. Well, your, well, your birth- <laughs> Cam was be like, why would I buy you a gift? I don't know, Cam. Maybe we'll pull together. I mean, your birthday is no, still I'm, a little no, ways away. My birthday just happened. So it, it you, did. You're you right. Well, yeah. why, do I, why am I always off on these things? I don't, like, for a second. I don't know. I don't even know anything about you, Sat. No. <laughs> if that's your real name. <laughs> it, it probably isn't, actually, to be honest. And Okay, before we get out. <laughs> We're yeah, sidetracked just, again. No, completely sidetracked. But before we get out, um, this is not a Canucks topic, but it's something that I can relate to a couple of Canucks players. Kobe Bryant, yeah, tragically passed away over the weekend. Um, and I mean, I, I, Kobe was my favorite basketball player growing up. Lakers are my favorite basketball team. It hit me really hard. But what was your reaction, Aldi, when you first heard about it? Because I do want to talk about the mama mentality in a second, because I think it's something that can be applicable to any walk of life. But what was your reaction when you heard about Kobe and his, and his daughter dying yeah, well, in a helicopter crash, plus all the other families? Yeah, I mean, first a couple things about all of this like the misinformation was frustrating um the i haven't seen confirmation on this but essentially i've seen it implied that you know his people closest to him found out about it through tmz Mm -hmm. which i I hate yeah um when i first saw it i didn't believe it i mean it was and I, i mentioned this when i joined you on the on the program with with walker the other day that it sort of it was a sportsnet notification that popped up on my phone uh, Sunday morning and I'm kind of, I just landed, I came back from Regina and, and there it comes up and I'm kind of like Sunday morning, Sportsnet, breaking news, like, like whatever, what's yeah. that going to be, right? Like it's, and then I just kind of look at it and I'm like, what? No. And then I read it again and again and I'm like, that's horrible. Like, I hope that's not, that's not real. And you look into it a little more and, and my first, the first report I saw was it was only four people and none of his family was involved. Then you hear like, all over the place with misinformation. When you finally get the facts, you're just like, it's it's devastating. Obviously, no matter how many people, like it's the fact that it's, it's it just hits home how quickly things can change, right? Like it's, whether it's a car accident, something like this, it, it's, it's devastating. Um, and I, and then I think about his, his impact, I guess, through, through, like you said, all walks of life. Kobe Bryant is a, is a, as far as athletes go, like, and I don't know if I really realized it because sometimes when you're growing up and you're, you're watching an athlete sort of in those years of your life in terms of sports fan and, and like, they don't, they they seem massive, but you also kind of, it's like a way, in a way you grew up with them. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that Kobe Bryant was my peer by any means, but I, I, I'm interested to get your take on this as well. Like you, you almost take the greatness for granted. It's just there. It's in your life. It's somebody like that's part of, okay, I watch basketball. The Lakers are great. Kobe's great. And, and all of a sudden you sit back and it, so much perspective comes. You're like, I, I don't think I realized how great it was what he did, how great of a player he was. And then it went beyond his playing and the way he impacted so many, so many walks of life and so many people in, in terms of their fandom and the way they, they, they viewed basketball, the way they viewed sports and his competitive drive. And it's, it's uh you know it's a, incredibly tragic to um to hear about anyone losing their life in that way but it's it's very it hit home to me like what an impact he had in in the world. We talked about Travis Green and if you're a coach you, you want to give something relatable and easily translatable to your players that they can kind of hold on to something that they can understand easily. And Colby he, uh, physically and athletically, we can't understand a player like that. I mean, right. none of us can be at that level. I mean, it's, it's next level. 
And the fact that he grew up in front of our eyes as a teenager, went through his challenges, went through some bad things, of course, went through a lot of success on the court. But it always seemed like he was real. You never kind of felt like he was being a phony with whatever it was. And I think that makes it easy to relate to. But more than anything else, the thing that we could all relate to was if you're passionate about something and you love something, it's okay to be obsessive about it. And it's okay to do everything you can to be the best at what you can do. Hard work can get you wherever you want to go. And he showed that and he made it so easy for you to understand why he had success. A big part of it is is his God-given athleticism and gifts, of course. But the reason he was the best of his generation, arguably, was how hard he worked. And the whole mama mentality wasn't about, hey, I'm the best basketball player on the planet. It was about, hey, this is what you can do to be the best at whatever you want to do. Hockey player, football player, baseball player, engineer, school teacher, professor, doctor, lawyer, whatever it is you do, you can be the best at it if you love it and you completely immerse yourself into something. And, and that, that right there is what I love about sports. I love that. And there's, there's other things that do this as well. And this is what I love about coaching. And this is what I love about working with young athletes. It's what, what life lesson can you teach someone or help them understand through a vehicle that is something they're extremely passionate about. And so, yeah, Kobe Bryant was able to do that and use his, his work ethic and basketball as an example. Um, you know, and, and that's, it's, it's fantastic. That, that is, goes in line with that. Like I, I look at it and you're like, all right, you, you care about something. There's consequences to it. Maybe those consequences feel they're hit a little closer to home because it relates to hockey. You know, that when I think about the, the players I coach and, but that also relates to all these other aspects of your life. And absolutely, I mean, the, the power of, of effort, right? The power of work ethic, the power of, of wanting to just try your best at something and, and, then, and then being okay and being satisfied, even if you came up short, at least you tried, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that is something that is, is very powerful and, and you're right, it, it is something that's relatable and it is, you know, that'll be an enduring, uh, everlasting sort of message and, and I guess gift in a way that Kobe Bryant gave this world is like, and, and there's so many people, whether it's uh, celebrities or not, right, that are influential through different different ways that that can sort of share that type of message. And and Kobe Bryant is one who who did it in a way and, and even even giving it like that, that Mamba mentality, yeah. like that type of name gives it an, an edge, gives it some, some appeal, right, that people get, can get behind and, and want to sort of embrace. It's something that Jordan was like too, and a lot of the great athletes are. And when we look at players in other sports and we try to look at who's the separating talent, who are the players that we look at as, as franchise elite level superstars? That's why we look at Pedersen and Hughes, for instance, and there's more players in the Canucks. I'm not just singling those guys out and saying those other guys don't have the same level, but they have a high level of God-given talent that is just innate and it's incredible. But the reason Pedersen's what he is and the reason Hughes is what he is is because they work harder than anybody to be the best they can be. And that's a type of legacy. And I'm not saying they were inspired by Kobe to be that way, but I see that. I see that influence. I see that type of mentality in those types of players. And now because of guys like Kobe, it makes it easier for us to identify athletes that are like that because of the work they put in and the God-given talent they have. But more than anything, how dedicated they are to their crafts. Well, the, the talent is one thing, right? But we've all seen athletes who are incredibly talented who squander it. And the, the work ethic and being able to put that effort in every single day and that drive to be the best, that is, that is elite as well. And that is often the thing that separates because that effort over time, when you add it up day after day after day in terms of um, skill acquisition and improvement, that is, it can be massive. It can be a massive separator. And then when you, when you combine that natural ability with that effort, it's scary. I mean, the sky's the limit. And, and Kobe Bryant's a guy who, who lived that every day and showed that, right, with, with all his championships and the way he played and the way he was able to perform for so long. Um, definitely about that. Uh, it's about that effort combined with his natural ability. Aldi, always a pleasure. I did want to spend a couple of minutes on Kobe and uh, get your thoughts on it as well. Um, Vancouver Canucks, well, they are on a roll. And hopefully next week when we convene, we'll talk, we're talking about more victories as this Eastern road trip continues. But it's a fun ride with the Canucks right now. And, and Canucks fans that haven't seen a team play at this level, well, it's, it's, been, it's been many years. Even the year they made the playoffs, 
an older team, you kind of knew that it wasn't going to be sustainable for long term. I think part of the reason this is so exciting is because this could be the start of something that could last for many years. It, it To me, it feels like the start of the West Coast Express era, mm-hmm. right? Like the start of, okay, we're, we've been through some dark times. Now let's see this emerge. And, and it was quite a long time before they had to rebuild again. Even there was a couple hiccups along the way and... But it, you know, to me, it has that sort of similar feel, and be, like you like you said, the key guys are young. The key guys are still improving. So it's like, not only are we good, we can get better. And I think that that's exciting as a sports fan. Yeah, and I can't wait. Uh, like Walker says, we're just killing time to the next Canucks game, and I look forward to watching the next few games, talking about it, and reconvening with you all the next week. Thank you for listening to the Canucks Pod. Subscribe, rate, and review on any one of your favorite podcasts. What do you listen? On. Do you listen? You have an Apple phone, right? You got an iPhone? Yes, you do. Yeah. So you listen on podcasts. Yeah. Okay. I do. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, we're up on Google Play. You can check it out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Check it out there, too. Awesome. Thanks, Aldi. <laughs> Thanks for listening right here. This has been the Couch Pod on Sportsnet 650. Stay out of the canals. <laughs> <laughs> this, has been, this has been absolutely beautiful, you guys. I can't believe it's come to an end. You guys will always be in my heart. And uh, I sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. No words can describe how I feel about you guys. To my family, my wife, Vanessa, our daughters, Natalia and Gianna, you know, thank you guys for all your sacrifice. You know, for all the hours I spent in the gym working and training. And Vanessa, you holding down the family the way that you have. I, I, I can't, there's no way that I can thank you enough for that. So yeah, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. What can I say? Mamba out. <laughs>